Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, your host, and today's episode will be part two of the Allison McDowell interview. Just as a reminder, we had been talking about blockchain technology and the tokenization and digitization of everything, kind of combining the virtual with the physical, and we had gotten into different aspects of how that relates to nature and the physical world, not just us as humans. Human beings, and she's mentioned a few times things about history and colonization, that kind of thing. And so that's where I am now about to shift the conversation into. And I will just go ahead and play the second part, which is the last half of the interview with Allison McDowell. Enjoy. Yeah, and that does bring up a point about these historical examples and patterns and cycles and these types of things. You've mentioned colonization as a model, as well as slavery. And there's that idea of techno-slavery that we're kind of headed into with all of these things you're laying out. Are there some... um, Well, could you actually talk a little bit more about the colonization parallels to what's going on today and how colonization has played out in our history? Yeah, well, I of late, I, I've been talking about um, if we could sort of get to the point of imagining that artificial intelligence was the end game settler colonizer. <laughs> like if, if, if people understood what settler colonization meant, which was beyond colonization, that the idea was that you actually remove you erase the original peoples, you know, whether that be through, um, you know, genocide and death or cultural erasure or whatever, that it's not simply that you want access to the resources and that you will use the people who are there to your own ends, um, but that you actually want to pretend that they that, that they, they didn't even exist. And so I feel like what, what we're bumping up against in this transhumanist world or this, this plan, this Davos, this... Um, you know, imagining is the erasure of natural beings, right? The erasure of, of natural life that's connected to a natural system as opposed to a, you know, a spatial web system. And so when I, when I was, I I listened to a great podcast with, with Stephen Newcomb and, and my friend Tessa about language. And he talked about how, um, you know, if you can imagine, you know, people on a shore and a, a, a ship coming in, this colonial ship coming in, that the people on the shore didn't really even have a language or a, a framework to understand what the people on the ship with their papal bull documentation saying, you know, if you're not Christian, you can just take these things, what was coming because they, they couldn't even, they didn't have a framework of understanding it. They couldn't, even if the people had showed up and got off the ship and they actually spoke the same language, they couldn't actually have a real conversation because their points of beingness in the world were so fundamentally different. Their ideas of relating in the world and laws of the world and their understandings were just in two very, very different places. And then it would take quite a bit of time for both sides to acclimate so that they would have some common frame of reference that would be a meaningful engagement. And I sort of feel like what we're ushering into now with this idea of um, essentially the rights of science um, to engage in an unquestioned level of population level bioengineering, um, 
where eugenics is just coming out of the closet and it's called, they call it bioinformatics, you know, or mm-hmm. biocomputing. And it just is going to usher onto the stage without question with, with, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the bioethicists just saying like waving it right on in. Um, the most people don't have an understanding of vocabulary, even of what that means of what, um, you know, using tobacco mosaic virus to get into your cells and turn them into computing systems, right? I mean, we're starting to get that some with understanding this software of life, this mRNA, these, um, you know, systems. But this technology is so far advanced um, with with nanoparticles, with nanorobotics, with individuals, um, this person, Ian Akildes out of Georgia Tech, and he's part of the Internet of BioNano things of literally imagining repurposing human bodies as computing systems. Um, so we can't even have that conversation. And to me, it feels like the imperial project, um, you know, as Manifest Destiny had sort of closed uh, you know, the, the borders of North America and then sort of the U.S. Imperial Project expanded into, you know, d- different levels of geopolitics and, you know, territories and so on and so forth. But that this next level is both at the ma- macro, um, the level of space, outer space, you know, weaponized weather, the ionosphere, the satellite, um, you know, systems that are going up, the, you know, the satellite constellation. So the, the ultimate macro of space and then the ultimate tiny, tiny nanoscale, you know, like within your cells, it's sort of like it's reaching both sides at the same time and that the interface, that the, the colonization of the cells will be linked to the satellite systems. Um, and so we as beings, like our bodies are the things that are being colonized, but we don't recognize it in that way. Hmm. Yeah, so it's it's us as beings on the micro level, but also all of nature in the entire planet on the macro level, and all of that's being colonized by this technocratic transhumanist virtual system. Um, to to play devil's advocate, though, I would say that to say an AI would be the end goal running things. At least my understanding of the transhumanist view would be that that AI is not necessarily an artificial intelligence, but rather it is all of the transhumanist elites who have uploaded their own consciousnesses and combined them together. And I don't know what in the world you'd call that, but I think in their minds that they are still alive, if you want to call it that. They're still around. They're still conscious in a way. And so since they are the elites and they see the way the world should be, then they should be in control of it. And that's kind of the, you, yeah, like you mentioned, the eugenics mindset on steroids and brought into a technological future. And it's not eugenics, it's uh, genetics. It's something that sounds much better. <laughs> right. Yeah. And actually today I was just like, oh, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Um, you know, I was looking back at um, just like the, the social efficiency movements, you know, of the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th centuries and, and the framing of that within a progressive framework. And, you know, it was always, you know, the, the, the elite, you know, this a lot of this goes back, the social impact investing to the Fabian Society in the UK. And, you know, that was something I just was new to my learnings around eugenics from the left, right? And uh, the the classist nature of 
that certain, you know, groups of people, you know, the elite would know better for the underlings, right? And that 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 essentially the the, the purpose of the masses of humanity were simply to feed the industrial system. And, you know, what's coming both with from the health standpoint and the education standpoint is that they want to remake um, human life to fit this new industrial process. And, you know, whether that be, you know, through their these online transcripts or the electronic health records, you know, and a lot of this is being done through philanthropy. And I just want to mention, too, on the, the, the DAOs is that there's a paper called Giving Unchained. Uh, that's that's a few years old. It's out of the United Kingdom, but they're actually imagining philanthropy on blockchain, right? And so we can sort of imagine the Gates Foundation money as a DAO or Chan Zuckerberg, right? And where the real-time data flows feeding into like, you know, it's hard to say even actual populations or even virtual populations, right? Hmm. Like, will the foundation start to endow grants to the digitally twinned world? Like, you know, it's it's hard to imagine these layers, but I think that that it's these mirror images that that is, we should start thinking about that. Like, what? oh my gosh, as bad as Bill Gates is, you know, or, you know, Bezos are these people, what happens when this money gets put onto a system that is encoded for certain outcomes. And, and the outcomes are about standardization, right? Anything that, that, that steps out of line of the standardized metric will be, you know, just rubbed out. And, and this goes back, there's an early book that I, I read that predates, you know, um, Brave New World in, in 1984 is, is the novel We by uh, Yevgeny Zamyatin. Yeah, I actually read that about two months ago. Perfect yeah, timing. Yeah, <laughs> it's dry. It's a really dry read, but it's important because it. I think it speaks to where we're at, being this number, right? Having no privacy. Um, but I think we're bigger than that. Like, I don't. I still don't. I'm not. I don't mean to like give in to the the negative because I think I think that you know my my friend Raul he set up this website called Silicon Icarus, um, uh, and. I think there is an overreach there. I mean, I think these people imagine themselves to be godlike, that they have all the answers. And I, 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 I feel pretty, pretty clear that they don't. Yeah, and I guess their idea is that if they had enough data and had the right algorithms in place, then they could make the perfect decisions for the good of all human beings. No, but that's what the academics say. I mean, and I think that's my frustration. Like I, my, my friend Zaki, I'm on her podcast sometimes and we're like, do we really think that they would solve the problems if they had just a little more granular data? And that's essentially what they hire policy wonks to say and what they hire professors to say. But I think anybody who really understands the system of domination and power realizes that populations that are considered disposable, there, there, there's no way to reason, you're not going to reason with power. They're not going to change the system that gives them the power and transfer power to those in need. They're simply not, even if they have more data. The The demand for more and more granular data is about creating new revenue streams for them and, and, and legitimizing uh, surveillance, community and individual level surveillance and profiling. So as you mention these things, you've got eugenics, you've got uh, 
populations that are considered disposable. You've got these test pilot programs, all of these things going on. And uh, typically, historically, the place that all of that takes place is Africa. That's kind of the number one place for this, as well as colonization fits in well with that. And uh, Cardano, I mentioned earlier, and you had sent me a link. I kind of went mildly down that rabbit trail for a little while. Um, I know they have a big focus in Africa and in third world countries. Do you have some uh, some examples of what they are doing and or the IO2 Foundation has some kind of similar projects going on? Yeah, well, so I mentioned Ampli, which was the, the early project with the IO2 Foundation. And when we were talking about securitization, I think it's important to know that um, IXO Foundation is also working with another group called um, IO2 Foundation, or also known as Shanzai City. And this uh, entity is based out of Hong Kong, but is sort of global. And what they're doing is they're meshing sort of IXO based in Switzerland's connections to social impact finance and the, the, the global banking industry with Asia's focus, like prowess on artificial intelligence and facial recognition. So they're, they're doing the last mile data verification elements. Um, so that's one piece. But then what's really interesting is that, so within the past few weeks, Cardano um, has just launched what they say is sort of the largest global deployment of blockchain identity. So their plan is they've made an agreement with the Ministry of Education in Ethiopia to put 5 million uh, Ethiopian students and teachers on blockchain with a digital identity. And this is being framed as, you know, this wonderful, uh, you know, liberating opportunity. Um, and it's interesting because Ethiopia actually has an area called the Sheba Valley, which is sort of the Silicon Valley of Africa. And Cardano has partnered with um, Ben Gertzel of, of Hanson Robotics. And they actually, in the Sheba Valley, uh, Hanson, uh, Ben Gertzel has a, an incubator called ICOG Labs. And I'm trying to remember the bigger lab. Um, Hanson, it's the something OpenCog. So there's so ICOG Labs is affiliated with Hanson Robotics OpenCog Labs, which is essentially the AI system uh, backing the their humanoid robots. So if people remember Sophia the robot who became a citizen of uh, Saudi Arabia, she's the first digital citizen. Um, her brain, evidently, a good bit of the software was engineered in Ethiopia. And the idea of these humanoid robot brains is that they too will be blockchained so that like once one robot has a skill, like now all the robots have a skill. And what Gertzel has done is on the back end of the technology system he's developing is something called Singularity Net. So Singularity Net is essentially a blockchain token economy to access um, data sets for AI refinement. And so a lot of data is being uploaded into the systems that will then AIs can trade one another um, to get information that they need Ultimately, their goal is to trigger the singularity, generalized artificial intelligence. And so singularity net is being fed into something. Um, IXO Foundation, actually, their back end feeds something called Ocean Protocol, 
which goes into SingularityNet. So this idea is to create this massive data lake that can be used to refine the algorithms to create artificial and generalized intelligence. And so in some ways, and I don't know specifically how the Ethiopia student identity system works, um, their identity system that, that Cardano is using, this is Cardano, which is, again, working with Gertzel, um, is called uh, Atala Prism. And so those children will be given a digital identity. Now, how much of their data, where that data lives, if it is accessible through the singularity net systems, or if it will accrue to those systems, maybe in a, um, in a form that is not personally identifiable is unclear. Now, I will point out that within Ethiopia, um, Tedros uh, Gabrasius of the World Health Organization uh, is Ethiopian. And he actually, in 2015, the global financial system had a, a gathering in Addis Ababa to talk about financing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that were adopted that year. Okay, so this is the whole goal system that will structure uh the data surveillance prison planet under the guise of green uh, environmentalism. And so he actually facilitated that meeting with the IMF and the World Bank. And ultimately, the World Bank is planning to create social impact bonds on blockchain. They're called Bond I. Um, and, and that initial pilot is actually in Australia uh, with uh, Commonwealth Bank. But it's clear that the idea of global finance, uh, World Bank developing educational investment products being backed through digital identity systems is being teed up. And there was something a number of years ago, um, Hewlett Packard teamed up with Yet Analytics, which is based out of um, uh, the Baltimore area, uh, creating an artificial intelligence brain that would... Uh, predict and track investments in country level education, uh, impact investing in uh, education systems at the country-based level. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious if Hewlett Packard and Yet Analytics ends up getting in, tracked into the Cardano space. Once you've blockchained 5 million children, they're not just going to sit there and like have them get nice little online learning lockers. Uh, that that human capital is going to be securitized somehow, and it will be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, and that it reminds me of a 9-11 parallel, which there are many of those going around. But so with blockchain technology, there is a specific technology that's being used in a lot of these projects, especially the privacy-centered ones, and that would be zero-knowledge proofs. And so the idea is that you can verify that something is or that it isn't. You can just verify a basically yes or no question without actually revealing the data or how you know for sure. Um, it's a verification process basically with zero knowledge. And so it would be a way, like you mentioned, you didn't know if it would be anonymous data that would be collected or if it would be tied to the individuals. Um, so there is a technology for doing that anonymously. And I would still say there are plenty of issues with that, even if we're anonymous. But uh, the 9-11 parallel that I thought of was that there was this project going on prior to 9-11, Operation Thin Thread. And that was this NSA kind of a spying program where they would gather all these communications and 
uh, phone logs and messages and all these things and compile all this data together. Then they could search that data, but it was all anonymized and it was all private. And they would have to get a warrant that was very specific in order to actually find out the specific data and information and people associated with all of these different data entry points. So um, despite what we think about the NSA and all of their activities, um, that was at least a project that did have an aspect of anonymity and privacy. Uh, however, that project got scrapped right as it was ready to be launched. And instead they went with Operation Trailblazer, which was a developed by a private company. So you get into public-private partnerships. It's that same model. And Trailblazer was basically the exact same thing minus the privatization aspect. And so everything was public and you could see everybody's identity. And I do unfortunately think that that's probably the way that things are going because that ties into uh, what you brought up at the beginning about the digital identities. And uh, that would be the idea that we all have a digital identity. And you mentioned um, creating social credit of some type. I forget the way you uh, framed that, but that um, that this was something that people could do, especially people who are poor. They could still build up some sort of reputation. They could generate this data and sell it, so maybe even make some money. Uh, once people were tokenized, then maybe you could create say, 100 tokens that represent me. And if you own more than 10 tokens of me, then you can tell me what to eat for lunch on every Tuesday or whatever you want to do. I mean, so many different ways of doing this. But even apart from just the the corporate side of things and the governmental side of things, the investments and the hedge funds, you've also got this aspect of I guess, kind of more gamification that might pacify people that, oh, this sounds really cool. We can invest in our favorite celebrity. And then then those tokens are going to raise in value and we'll make a bunch of money. And hey, we can get them to say this thing on TV or whatever. Um, it, I do see that as being, I guess, maybe a way of pacifying people, getting people interested in the technology and willingly giving their data and their even their digital ownership up to other people. Is, is that something that you have actually seen any examples of? Or is that just theory in my own head right now? Well, um, so as, as far as like the credit scoring system, there's actually, there are pilots in Foshan, China around um, tracking people on parole in smart city environments on blockchain, sort of along the lines of a credit system, right? Like, are you doing all the things you're, are you checking in your workstation, you know, your workforce are you where you're supposed to be at these various times? So there definitely are ways of uh, tracking compliance in smart environments that are already underway. Um, and, and increasingly, like the attention economy, the celebrity economy, like that is all being tokenized as well. I mean, I guess the thing is, is that people perhaps haven't quite grasped the shorting aspect of all of this. Like, and, and I think that's something that the GameStop scenario helped expose again, because when I was first talking about this, the beginning of last year, I kept saying, remember that I really need you to watch this movie, The Big Short, <laughs> because it, it, it explains very effectively, like how the, how the setup of these toxic bundled mortgages were created and that the people who made out the most were the people who bet against the market. Right. And so once you have a securitized, once you have securitized assets, 
there's an equal chance that someone is betting for a bad outcome. And so all of the um, the social impact finance investments, it's very important to understand that it is in sync with the shift to electronic government, uh, to even what they would frame as open data government. It's being framed as so wonderful that we have all of this open data. Um, it, people should look to Estonia, which is sort of the, the blockchain governance model. It's so convenient. It's so seamless. All the data is right there. But if your relationship to the state, whatever state you are in, starts to become you as a debt commodity to the state, and that is tied to your digital identity, and that becomes a global investment opportunity, that once that debt is securitized, there are people who would bet that you don't accomplish the things that you're expected to accomplish, right? So if, if, if you know, you're put on a workforce improvement pathway and um, someone's potentially like the odds are greater to short you, what's to say that the smart environments don't start to act in ways that are sort of black mirror to enable certain outcomes to happen or not happen, right? And, and maybe nothing so serious as, um, you know, direct direct harm, but like the bus gets detoured or some of these things happen that make it less likely that you're able to fulfill the obligations that you're expected to by investor A versus investor B. Um, these are sort of these larger ethical questions. And there was actually even a short story in Slate magazine a while ago that talked about that. Um, you know, it was a it was set up as a, a person who was essentially a hitman on employees like who were not fulfilling their human capital valuation levels. And, um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of dark. But again, my framework, I keep going back to do we want to live in the spatial web? Do we want to live as cybernetic beings, not resonating with a natural energetic system, but within a planetary computing system? And the framework of that, which is something many people conveniently set aside within the gamification because it's entertaining, is that it is a fundamentally militarized environment, which is pre preferences systems of power. The internet, the cloud, it's military. And it's military packaged in, in entertainment. It's military packaged by Disney. Um, but it's the military. And ultimately, these militarized interests are advancing and foreseeing a world where natural human life doesn't exist. And so do we want to take that step into that world and keep going? Because I don't think that it's, it's not our game. We're not running this game. Yeah, and you're mentioning something that uh, comes into more of a moral and ethical component. And when you talk about shorting other human beings, especially when we're talking about children, like pre-K kids, and betting on their outcomes to be poor and bad things to happen to small children, to me, that is a morally bad thing. That is ethically wrong. That is evil, possibly. And so... With this, I, I totally agree. This would be something that we would want to fight against, but it does seem like it's not just technological. You've got these ideologies like eugenics, like racism, and you've got this moral component behind it of people thinking that 
uh, either that it's okay to treat other human beings this way, or at least overlooking it for the sake of the profits that they get. Uh, whatever it is, it's not right. I think we would all probably agree uh, with that statement. But it does seem like there is some sort of maybe a spiritual component of some kind going on here. Um, do you have any commentary on that aspect as well, aside from the technological aspects? Well, I... So one of the, the people who's been a, a big influence on the way I look at it, because I think what we're living through right now is, I mean, clearly a war of weaponized narrative. So Eric Schmidt um, is a, of, of Alphabet, like is a major funder of New America, the think tank, and they, they fund uh, the Center for the Future of War at Arizona State, which, which again, Michael Crow, the CIA. And so of the the... Their focus areas for the future of war were like autonomous weapons and drones and then weaponized narrative, right? And and DARPA has their own like uh, narrative networks, you know, looking at the role of narrative and shaping the way we think. And I think, you know, if we look to, uh, you know, James Giordano, the professor at Georgetown, who's into like neuro warfare, right? He's like, the brain is the battle space, right? And so we are... We are living through sort of a setup where people are made to not know what reality is is anymore, not trust things anymore, um, to hyper compartmentalize people, to be easily triggered, um, to be fragmented. And to me, the biggest threat to the imposition of this system would be for people to try to reset from a place of compassion, like knowing that we're all frail and fallible, messed up <laughs> people trying, but to come from a place of compassion and to look for some common unifying principles, not again, to ask people to give up their value systems, but to look for, I believe that most people are inherently good, right? And people are caught in very bad situations that they feel like the forces are so big that they can't get out of them alone. And so that they just keep going because they can't see any other way out besides just to keep their head down and not look too wide and just do what they're asked to, to do. Um, and so I think coming at this from a spiritual positioning feels right. And I, I, I come at this from someone who doesn't really have a specific other than sort of growing up wasp, you know, um, uh, faith practice is that if we look at what we are dealing with from a, a materialist lens, right? And I think that's in many respects why I feel like I, I no longer fit in with the, the left is that they, they sort of abhor um, spirit, really. It's, they're very materialist to the, to often not inclusive of, of, the non-material, right? The immaterial, the things that may be beyond our current um, ability to perceive in, in the material world. And so if you're just basing it on sheer access to might <laughs> to go up against um, 400 years of, you know, banking, <laughs> predatory banking and militarism and, you know, we don't have that. Clearly, we were not in a position of um, prevailing within that framework. And so to me, the framework is this larger reckoning um, 
with the history and from people's faith practice, knowing that, and I will say the cautionary tale here is that the social impact finance program, the weaponized public safety net, a social safety net will be managed by faith-based institutions. The faith-based institutions are going to play a central, central role in the internet of bodies. And in many respects, I think the plan is to blockchain religion and tie that into social welfare delivery. So it is not necessarily people's connection to institutionalized faith, but is to their direct connection to the sacred and their, their, their more direct connection to sort of a mystical experience um, of the beyond. And, and not that that can't take place within a cultural framework of your own cultural practice, but not to rely on the bureaucracy of the institutions. That has to be something more direct. And I, I say this because I'm in Philly and, you know, part of our history here is that in the 1690s, uh, Johannes Kelpius was a Silesian monk who came with 40 other monks to wait. He was a, a, was a millenarian cult to wait for the end of the world with the woman in the wilderness. And they were alchemists and astronomers and astrologers and singers. And they were mystics, really. And they came and it didn't it didn't happen right then. It didn't happen right then. But the cave is still out there. And it's um, the Rosicrucians claimed him, actually. It's interesting. Um, but I think that there is something in in a mystical connection to a greater spirit. Um, and accessing that place to the extent possible from a place of care um, and compassion, even though it's not easy because we are so, so polarized right now. Yeah, yeah, and I I do resonate with that mystical aspect because I guess from my perspective and um, some content that I've covered in the past is that we are kind of coming out of being a more materialistic society all about consumerism, materialism. I think that was one of the very first things that you talked about, talking about some of the old models for profit and control were kind of that framework. And then we headed into the debt-based framework. Well, it does seem like society in general is heading to be more in, I guess, more oriented towards the spiritual, mystical, immaterial realm. Because uh, if you look at like um, the most popular movies and shows, most of them are sci-fi or there's magic involved in some way. Or if you look at um, the video games that are being played, some of them, yes, are realistic, but most of them have some sort of more the mystical quality to them and that's intertwined in the narrative and it's something that oh you want to find out what happens and why and it's this mystery and it seems like these things draw people in it's that aspect of creating a new world you talked about getting into the virtual world and it does seem like instead of staying in the material world and consuming resources you go into the virtual world and then you create new things and instead of looking to a creator or looking at the environment and nature around you for what it is and what it has been for much longer than you've been around. Um, instead, let's go into this virtual world and I can become my own God and create my own things. And so I, I do see that there is this mystical side of things, spiritual side of things, a moral side of things. But unfortunately, it does seem like the uh, let's say the the enemy, the powers that be, this shift into the virtual world, um, that is kind of consuming that from the public in a lot of ways and dividing them up. And they are 
picking different aspects of this, but it does seem to me that that people are finding their faith, their meaning, their being a part of something bigger than themselves in a virtual way instead of a real way oriented around community and real people. Is that something that that you feel is going on as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in so many, you know, so much of this past year, there have been splits within all of these communities. So, um, you know, I've been interfacing with people from other interest groups that weren't my my space, right? So I was coming at things from a both an, an education space and a, a space of understanding the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, but not so much like a health freedom space or like an alternative health space or, um, you know, meditative, these other, you know, there's, I've learned a whole lot <laughs> this past year, right? And it seems like all of those communities sort of were splitting apart between people who, had different understandings of what was happening, right? Like all of them, right? Like whether you were in yoga or you were in herbalism or you were in all, like every group was like splitting. And so there is, it's interesting because Paul Tudor Jones of Tudor Investments is one of the major bankrollers of the human capital finance program through the Robin Hood Foundation and the the Harlem Children's Zone, again, racialized, was for 30 years, the incubator to create a lot of these equations that are going to run through the the promise zones and opportunity zones that are coming out. Like he bankrolled a lot of that. And his wife is a yoga person. And actually they endowed a center for the contemplative sciences at the University of Virginia, where where I believe he's an alum there. And he was very influential um, in some of the UVA politics. So there's quite a number of interesting interventions in um, mindfulness, especially that are overlapping with sort of mental discipline and um, even harmonizing this push towards like, you know, what I was talking about with Ben Gertzel and, and the Sophia, the blockchain mind, like a hive mind consciousness, um, the idea of a, a collective consciousness, but some of the like the World Economic Forum movers and shakers are coming out of like this new agey um, meditative aspect, which could easily feed into, you know, which, you know, are you joining the hive mind? Right. Is that is that where we're going? And I think um, it's not always clear when certain individuals are involved of what type of um, uh, spirited, spiritual practice are people pursuing, right? Um, and where where are people's alliances are and what what power dynamics are in play? Because I, I've seen a lot of work around mindfulness and meditation in school environments where it seems like, well, we're going to create a really, really terrible, hostile and traumatic environment, but we're just going to expect you to suck it up and get some skills to meditate your way out of it, which is, is, is not right at all. So yeah, I mean, I think that the virtualization, the mystical stuff does get mixed in with the digital realm, because I think in some respects, there is like a dark magic to some of that, too. (laughs) You know, I think that there are the individuals who are coming at this from the point of domination are people who have very likely access to occulted knowledges, to occulted practices um, that are not to, to alternate to aspects of science that are not commonly known in the public. 
And, um, you know, that's sort of what we're dealing with. And so I tend to come at things more from probably more an anarchist um, uh, individual framework. Um, if like trust your own gut and trust your own instincts with people, like have a healthy dose of skepticism um, along with your love and then, you know, follow the path that feels right. Um, and don't be afraid to turn around if you start going down and you realize it's the wrong road. Yeah, that does steer us into kind of the wrap up for what I wanted to cover here. And you mentioned meditation and meditation, I'm sure you would agree, is not in and of itself a bad thing. Meditation is very good, very useful in many different ways. But if that is the only way that you are coping, that is the only way that you are acting is by just looking inward and calming yourself down from the violence and the corruption of the world, then you're probably not really doing a whole lot for that world that you live in and those around you. Um, it does seem like more of an isolated technique. And so again, that doesn't necessarily make it bad or say that there isn't a role for meditation in um, doing things that are good. But if, if that is, again, the only one, then that doesn't seem very beneficial overall. It seems like if we are going to take some sort of action in light of these shifts that are going on, at least in my mind, there are two main strategies that we could choose. Uh, one would be the fifth column strategy where you are kind of in the system, but fighting against the system. So it's not that you are removing yourself and just getting away from it. It's that you are you are there, but you're kind of playing the gray man and um, kind of being a little sneaky and hiding yourself and trying to sabotage things that are going on and actively fighting it. Um, that would be one strategy. The other strategy would be more of the Benedict option of kind of withdrawing from society and sheltering yourself, uh, not just as an individual, but as a community, getting like-minded people and kind of trying to withdraw from this spatial web that you and I and many people don't really want to have a whole lot to do with. Um, that, that would be the other strategy would be to kind of take yourself out of that and try to preserve a natural way and a natural order outside of those things that are going on. Uh, do you have any personal opinion on which one of those approaches would be one that would be more effective than the other? Or do you have any other strategies that you would recommend? Well, I think, I mean, there's not one right way because, you know, depending on where, uh, you know, where you are in what stage of life you're at, um, you're, you're, uh, you know, positioning within the economic system and access to resources, it's, it's going to be different. Um, I have to say, I'm, for me personally, you know, as someone who's, who's 51, like, I don't feel like I'm going to really accommodate very well to the, the idea of, you know, cyborg avatar capitalism. <laughs> um, and so I think that people who are of a certain age and willing to stand up and, and confront what's actually happening. I think that there's an important role um, there to, uh, to take a public stance against it and to, to be a witness to it and to, to say that, um, that it's not okay. Um, because I, you know, someone also was sharing some teachings with me this week about like morphic fields and this idea of, I don't know, it's like the hundredth monkey or something that like once a new 
like new knowledges come in and people model it and other people pick it up that when it gets to a point of like a hundred, it kind of jumps the whole planet. Like it's like some sort of upload or something that there's this, this scenario. And so I sort of feel like I've been pursuing this project with these dandelions and this, uh, you know, revocations of consent, um, that is, you know, I'm getting these dandelions from all over the country and, um, that maybe that's, that's one avenue. Um, the, the, the retrenchment in a, in a defensible position, you know, I'm, I'm, while I, I agree very much in the idea of mutual aid and, um, you know, alternative systems and, and that sort of thing, I do have concerns that given the level of technology at the disposal of those in power, that if a community actually became a perceived threat to that system of power, that they have tools to eliminate that system. I mean, and and then, and also if we're under, what we're understanding is, is that we're probably advancing into a, a larger system of geoengineering where weaponized weather is a target, like having sustainable agriculture under those systems is going to be really challenging. So, you know, I don't particularly want to go live in a cave, you know, like with grow lights or something to me, I'd rather like stand up for the thing I love, which is like my messy, interesting city, you know, as long as I have it, I'd rather like try to, to stand for that. Um, you know, the working within the system, I, I have a 20 year old kid, right? Like, I think it's very, very stressful for them to imagine, like, it, it. I know it totally stresses them out to hear me talk about this stuff, and they'd rather not know it. So, you know, for, for people of a certain age, I think they're going to have to find their way, right? And I think we have to hope that, you know, we leave enough of a model um, that they can lean on the way I lean on other people's teachings to, um, you know, to hold them up in their journey of navigation. They're at a different point in their life um, than, than those of us who are at the, the outer end of it. Um, so I guess that's, you know, I'm not one to judge, but I do think that I, I would put a call out for people who feel like that this isn't the world they want and that they don't want to run, that we don't have to run, but that we need to be mindful of asserting our desire for the non-spatial web world in a way that comes from, again, a, a place of love because the most, the, the system wants to frame us as um, in, in a certain way, right? So that, that we can be eliminated. And I think if your tools of choice are, are, are dandelions and, and um, you know, thoughtful speech, then, then that's going to be harder to do. And I think as sort of a, a, a gray hair, like lady in mom jeans, like I'm, I'm accessible to a lot of different people because I really do feel like I'm speaking the truth as I know it now, which is not to say like it may not evolve with new information, but I don't think most people on this planet would want to live in a military video game. I just don't believe that that's right. And I, I do believe that actually, if approached with a sense of grace and forgiveness and a way out that many people in this world would be willing to grapple with some of the hard truths that we have to grapple with, right. About colonization and domination, because we're all assaulted with it. Even if we are the ones of privilege, uh, we live in a world of domination, which is, is not a healthy place to be in, right. We live in a, we're living in a militarized world where people's needs are not met. 
and that's not emotionally healthy and it's not physically healthy. And so, um, you know, imagine what could be done if we could actually come together around, um, you know, having some sort of global solidarity against, um, you know, the settler colonial AI. I mean, that's how I feel about it. So, um, you know, not one answer. I would say like my one reservation is like, if you're going to have your own independent community, I really wouldn't run it on blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) That would be my caveat. I know that doesn't make me popular in certain circles, but that would be my one, (laughs) my one recommendation. Well, I can. So I guess I can play devil's advocate here and say that, um, I guess the manifestation of blockchain that probably most people are familiar with would be cryptocurrencies and that there are definitely uh, coins and projects and currencies that are being used to track and trace people and totally control people and governments are coming out with their own and there's that whole side of things. Um, but at the same time, uh, I live in America, which runs like most of the world on the US dollar. And whether it be my tax dollars that I pay in to fund all of these wars and a lot of things that I don't agree with, or whether it just be that I'm taxed through inflation. There's nothing I can do about it if the central bank decides to print $3 trillion. And yet the only reason that works is because I am participating in this monetary system that they have set up and that they totally control And so I do know that because I am familiar with both camps in this argument, so (laughs) I I think I can play devil's advocate fairly well here and say that there are some cryptocurrencies specifically that are oriented towards being private and truly decentralized based on totally voluntary interaction and would be, you mentioned anarchist, they would definitely be built on more of an anarchist perspective. Um, So do you see that there might be some projects or some uh, tools of technology that we might be able to use in order to opt out of this control system that's being made for us, run by the techno-fascists of the world? Um, Is that something that might be possible, even if it is using similar technology, kind of like the internet is what is used to track and trace, surveil us, collect all this data, and yet we are using the internet to communicate and disseminate all this information. Um, do you think that there is some role to play in some of that? Or do you feel that might be just too dangerous to be involved with? Or what would be your opinion? I think for the most part, um, I don't believe that some anonymous liberation technology came on the heels of the last economic crash, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't really like I think most people, if they really leveled with themselves, this whole Santoshi Nakamoto thing, like it it came there for a reason. It's there for a reason. And, um, you know, I I think if if more people in the blockchain space were also speaking about the spatial web and smart contracts and um, the singularity net and and impact tokenization um, in in a really thoughtful way, um, I would I would feel better about it, but that hasn't really happened yet. Um, and, you know, they're blockchaining 5 million Ethiopians. So, um, you know, I'm not going to tell people what to do with their thing. I, for me, I, I, I'm very skeptical of this anonymous liberation technology. And I think part of it is actually, it has to do with globalization, right? And so, and a lot of it, honestly, like people are into it because they're making, they feel like on paper, they're, they're making a lot of money, which 
to me, if you're trying to come up with more of a mutual aid system, it isn't about like making more than the other person and like looking like you're really rich on paper. It's about making a functional society that has a balance of resources. And, and if, if that's the goal, and if you have a locally based community, unless the goal is to, you know, do enact a lot of global trading scenarios, I'm not sure exactly why you need mechanical trust. I mean, that's, that's sort of where it is for me. I mean, I think you could come up with another financial system that worked locally that didn't rely on mechanical trust. To me, you know, if, if you come back to the, the sense of, are we resonating with a natural system? Or are we resonating with a mechanical system? Once you've, you've thrown your trust in with the mechanical system that you, you've, you've gone down a certain road, but you know, everybody has to make their own choice. I'm not saying it's complicated. It's certainly not easy. We're, we are in this web. We are at the end of four, you know, many years of many centuries of domination here. Right. And, and do the, do, do we use the tools or do the tools use us? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I do resonate with that really well because I have a, a local community that's started up over the past year of people that are, I guess, oriented towards mutual aid and operating outside of the system, things like permaculture and homeschooling mm-hmm. and a lot of these types of things. Um, and there is, there are some people that are very pro blockchain and cryptocurrencies, especially the privacy ones. Um, there are also some people in our local group that are very skeptical, some that listen to you and um, have uh, recommended some of your other interviews personally. Um, but that that aspect that you mentioned is something that I was just thinking about actually yesterday or the day before about how if you do actually know the people you are interacting with, then what is the need for some mechanical trustless system if I can actually have real trust? And I, I do think, at least for me personally and for our group, um, our goal is to build a network of like-minded individuals where we can trust each other, grow um, to know each other and build relationships with each other. And that is, I feel, in line with this natural order of things. And uh, although there might be aspects of technology that we'll definitely be using to help facilitate these things, uh, the primary objective, at least for me, and um, most of the people I'm involved with is to grow a local community where we actually know each other, we build relationships, build connections. And so I, I really do like the way that you frame that, that, that that is the more important aspect and that that should be the focus, regardless of what routes and avenues and strategies that any of us pursue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the human relationships are really important, as you said, and, and, you know, you were touching on meditation being one thing, but being isolated. And, you know, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're going to be doing another set of revocations on Saturday, I think, actually in New York. But we, we launched our first one outside the Council on Foreign Relations on Easter Sunday. Ooh. And um, it was pretty amazing. Actually, we're on Park Avenue and there's a median there and, and 25 people came like and I only knew a handful of people in advance and they were all people who came by word of mouth. And we, um, you know, the Foreign Affairs magazine had done a, in 2016 a whole issue on social impact finance Um with the Rockefeller foundation, actually. <laughs> and we just said, it's, you know, not in our name. Like we're not, we're not okay with that. And then we, we ripped it up and we, um, we put our good intentions in. I, I quilted, I made this little 
quilted pocket with a heart on it and these these dandelions we put in and we we left it in the tree pit outside there but it was very powerful just to have you know and i i think in many respects some of the the framing of resistance around this sort of biosecurity state are framed you know in ways that are also kind of polarizing but this these were people who were there because they they were there for kids they were there because they were it was just, it was all from a really caring place. And it was that human connection. Like, you're right. You can't just do it by yourself. You have to do it with other people. And it's that showing up with other people, both in community, the way you were talking about and building local resiliency and in ceremony that I think is where we're the most powerful. Um, you know, and I have some concerns a bit, um, you know, whatever we label this, if it's, you know, some people will say, okay, it's just capitalism or it's communism or it's technocracy or it's communitarianism or what have you. But, um, you know, in the latter one, the communitarianism, while I, I agree a lot about this person, Etzioni, like I would hate to lose this idea that in our individual liberties that we don't have um, the obligation of reciprocity towards one another. You know, and, and, and I think that, that the community part is really, really important, both among human beings and between humans and the environment. Yeah, and your your movement reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar with Lysander Spooner. Are you familiar with him? No. Okay, so um, he was very negative on the Constitution, and uh, he wrote uh, No Treason as his most popular work, but his whole argument was that this is a contract that I did not sign, therefore it is not valid for me, and that was kind of one of his main points, but it's kind of that idea of withdrawing your consent um, from the control mechanism over you. And uh, I, I do like that. Um, would you mind telling the listeners uh, some ways that they can get more of your resources, more of your content, more of your writing, these types of things? Or do you have any other um, resources and recommendations for us? Um, well, so my, my blog is called Wrench in the Gears, Wrench like the tool, wrenchinthegears.com. I haven't been writing as much lately because I've been doing a lot of podcasts and presentations. Um, so I, I, I've got to get back in the saddle on the writing. But um, I also have a YouTube channel still because most of the stuff I talk about isn't really censored yet. And that's just my name, Allison McDowell um, at YouTube, I guess, if you put that in, it should come up. And um yeah, like I said, you know, Ron Kind of Green and Corey Morningstar are great um, for the environmentalism part, and Clive Spash is really good. And I would say a really foundational lecture on social impact finance and the racialization part of this is um, a, a gentleman. His name is Justin, Dr. Justin Leroy, and I believe he's. I'm not sure. He's one of the University of California schools. Um, I can't remember if it's Santa Barbara, maybe, uh, but he wrote, he, he gave a lecture at the Whitney Museum of Art um, called uh, Social Impact Bonds and the Afterlife of Slavery. And it was part of a, um, a lecture series. Cameron Rowland is a an artist actually from Philadelphia, he grew up in Philadelphia on, he does ready-made art around the carceral state. And he had bought, used money. It was an exhibit about debt, I believe in maybe 2017 at the Whitney Museum of Art. And he used his allocation of money to make the art to buy a share of the social impact bond. And it was the Ventura County social impact bond. Uh, I believe it was for youth, maybe this moral recognition therapy. And then he brought in uh, Justin Leroy to talk about it. But it really talked about the, the whole legacy of the insurance companies and the maritime trade and um, 
it was very, very powerful. So like, I always recommend that as a starting point that you don't, it's not just me who's a mom in Philadelphia, but they're actually, you know, academic <laughs> academics and, and, you know, who are, who are speaking on this as well. So um, I guess that's, that's pretty good. Oh, in my, my, I have a friend, uh, uh, Roxana Maris, she, she's a, a professor at San Jose State, and she has a blog called Edu Researcher, and she has done a lot of work on smart cities too, because uh, we did a lot of collaboration early on around uh, the social impact bond pay for success pilots in Santa Clara County, California. So, um, and we, we actually wrote together, uh, uh, helped, we we got a, a resolution passed at the national meeting of the NAACP in 2019 against linking blockchain identity to public benefit systems. Wow. <laughs> that, that promptly, if you Google it, the resolutions from 2019 of the NAACP it, and put in blockchain, it, you will find it, but they don't make quite a big deal about it. <laughs> we didn't know that we, how timely that was going to be actually. Well, perfect. Well, I'll, I'll provide links for all of these things in the show notes so that everybody can have a link to go to all of these various things that you have mentioned and resources. So thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think you've really touched on a lot of these things that that we've been delving into and exploring from all different perspectives. And you've hit on a lot of these things that I, I think are definitely worthy of elaboration. So thank you for coming on and discussing all this. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for your time. So that wraps up the interview that I did with Allison McDowell. I really enjoyed this. She's got some great perspectives on a lot of these different aspects, and she really hits on, again, a lot of the things that we've talked about a lot before, but from a different angle, from a different perspective, highlighting different aspects with different examples, and that is very beneficial as we are all trying to really figure out what's going on, where we're going, how these things are playing out, how they're connected, all of these kinds of things. I especially find it helpful how she goes deep into how blockchain technology specifically is being used to facilitate a lot of the technocratic shifts that are going on, as well as this combination, this intertwining of the virtual and the physical. This is a theme that's really been coming out a lot lately, in, especially in the past few interviews. So I really enjoyed that. I really appreciate her coming on and doing this. And I think it offers a lot of balance for those especially who are completely sold on the blockchain narrative. And personally, I am someone who definitely likes the idea of decentralization, of taking power away from the state, from corporations, and spreading that out to the people that are actually living and interacting and transacting and using these systems and these things, I, I definitely like that. I like the decentralization of power and I like not having a centralized source controlling things. And that's something I really enjoy. But at the same time, I also recognize, like Allison McDowell does, that there are other aspects of blockchain technology, like it being a completely public ledger in a lot of versions and how there are centralized versions of this technology that use the advantage of being able to verify things and gain trust and these types of things, be able to 
uh, code in certain aspects, like having a programmable money is something that is very useful. And all of these things are being used on a centralized front to do things that most of us would definitely be very against. And so having that balanced view, I think, is very helpful. What is especially interesting is the way that these interviews have played out because Julianne Romanello, as well as Allison McDowell, are both more negative on the blockchain sphere and that technology as a whole. And the exact opposite is true of the next guest that you will get the pleasure of listening to next week on the next episode, and that will be Ven Armani, who has been on the show before. If you are new and you have not listened to that series, that's one of the most enjoyed series that I have done on the show, period. So possibly something you might want to check out. But beside that, there is another follow-up interview that I've done with Ven, and I'd done it a while ago, but I had the Julianne Romanello interview and the Allison McDowell one, and I knew that what we would be discussing would be best to fit before Ven Armani. Originally, I was just going to do Ven Armani and then get into season three, and then I ended up getting Julianne Romanello and Allison McDowell. I didn't think I was going to get either one of them on the show, and things worked out really well, and so that's why this one has been a little delayed, but there was nothing time-sensitive in the Ven Armani interview, this follow-up one, and so all of it is extremely relevant and it is especially good that it is coming on the heels of this Allison McDowell interview because she's bringing up a lot of really good points on the negative side of how these things are being used for uh, bad purposes, nefarious reasons. And Vin is definitely looking at a different perspective, something much more positive and uh, strangely enough, something much more spiritual. And so that is a very interesting take. And I think you'll really find it engaging and interesting as well. So come back next time for that. I would like to give a special shout out to the Libertarian Brewer on Twitter, at least. He has been a subscriber now. He is the second subscriber on Subscribestar. So thank you very much for being a supporter on there, supporting the show financially. I know you've been listening for quite a while, and I've seen you on Twitter for a while. So I definitely appreciate seeing someone who has been enjoying the show for quite some time. And I heard that you were going back through the older episodes and binging through things. And I'm sure that is quite a ride. And I think that especially post-COVID, going back through those episodes is probably very interesting in a very good way because a lot of the things that I talked about, especially in season one, uh, heck, I guess especially in season two too, but a lot of them point towards the same things that are going on today. And even some of the specifics of what's going on today are being carried out the way I described in season one and season two. So that should be very interesting to go through for you. So thank you very much. And thank you to all of these supporters. I now do have quite a few financial supporters of the show. I recently uh, paid for a bunch of books that I ordered for research. Some are philosophy, some are history. And that was extremely helpful to be able to order those and pay for those 
with the money that I am getting from you guys, the listeners. So I am now able to not only pay for hosting and for the equipment that I need and for an Audible subscription to listen to things and a book here and there, but now I can actually even get a batch of books in addition to all of these things. And I am able to do all the things I need to do to make this podcast what I would like it to be, at least most of what I would want to do to make it mostly what I would like it to be. And I can do that because of you guys. So thank you very much. Thank you for all the listeners in general for coming on and exploring these different ideas and topics. I hope you find it interesting. Feel free to reach out to me, our foundations at protonmail.com. You can give me feedback. You can offer requests. You can give me some info, a link to an article, you know, whatever. If there is something of interest, please feel free to reach out. If you haven't done so already, please get on there and leave a review and a rating, ideally both. But if nothing else, at least just click the stars for the rating. That is very helpful. Uh, This is a show that is not extremely big, so to get some numbers on the ratings and reviews would definitely be very helpful in getting more exposure. And I would guess that if you are listening to this, you believe that this information, this material is very important to get out there. And having exposure for something like this would be a very good thing for most of the people out there in the public. So if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating or a review, telling people about the show, or if nothing else, at least just talking about these concepts with people around you. But doing it in a way that is not overwhelming for people that will just drive them away and think you're crazy. So definitely have some balance, have some wisdom, but don't shy away from calling things out for what they are. That is at least my personal advice there. So with that, I'm out of here. Come back next time. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.